I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 16, and we'll read through to 19. Then we're going to focus in on verses 18 and 19 with the rest of our time. But let's begin reading Colossians 2 and verse 16. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Well, Paul's concern um, throughout this book, and in this section in particular, is that we would continue on in Christ as we began, as we received Him. And we're in a portion in which he is admonishing the Colossians to reject the false teachers who've infiltrated their ranks and are teaching doctrines and practices that are undermining the gospel of grace and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's important for us to note that, that Paul's concern is not only that we would rightly understand how one becomes a Christian, but also how one lives as a Christian. He's not simply trying to make it so that we have a solid doctrinal statement on paper about how salvation works. It's by grace through faith. He's arguing, what he's arguing for has immense practical implications for everyday life. He desires that all of life would be according to Christ. That is, lived in a way that is fitting with the gospel and in reliance upon Christ and His grace. And this is what is being endangered by these false teachers. So the concern is not simply how does one become a Christian, and he's upholding the gospel in that sense, which he is, but also how this then translates into how we live our lives and how we grow as believers. And what's at stake is made very plain in the first part of verse 18 when he says, let no one disqualify you. Notice that the practices he's about to condemn are serious. They would disqualify the Colossians. They would leave them condemned. Condemned is another possible translation of that word. So if they were to heed what these Colossian teachers are saying, it would leave them disqualified. It would move them away from grace, away from the gospel itself, away from Christ. This is remarkable, I think, to consider up front. Because I would venture to guess that for so many people who attend church, there'd be this idea that as long as you have some sense of grace and some sense of the gospel and believing in Jesus to enter into Christianity, then once you're in, then there's just a ton of flexibility from here on in, in terms of what we should be doing, how we grow, what practices are helpful, and really just many people taking a very pragmatic approach, that which 
seems helpful to you, just go for it. A lot of people do think that way. We're basically free to do whatever as long as it seems reasonable. But these arguments that the Colossians were facing, which Paul, if you remember, terms as plausible arguments, so they sound pretty good, they sound reasonable, they have an air of sensibility, they would actually disqualify them. The word disqualify carries the image of an umpire ruling against someone, rendering someone disqualified from the race. This is what the false teachers are doing. They obviously don't think it is so, but that's what Paul says they're doing, and therefore this is clearly a very serious matter. The reason it's so serious is because one's life and practice might betray a misunderstanding of the gospel of grace. The practices taught by the false teachers, they don't fit with the gospel, with, the, with grace. They don't, they're not in accordance with the fact that Christ is all-sufficient for salvation. They're undermining these things in what, how they're telling these Colossians they need to live and what they ought to believe and what they should be doing, how they should draw near to God and so on. And so it's simply not acceptable to take a pragmatic approach to the Christian life. That we would just pursue holiness out of however we think that might work, uh, using whatever methods we think may seem good to you. So, of course, then how do we live as Christians? Uh, Specifically, how do we stay healthy and grow as individual believers and corporately as a church? Well, in these verses, Paul continues as he's addressing this and answering this, He continues warning about how we're not to live the Christian life, how it is we don't pursue growing as believers. We're going to look at three things. And then this is followed by a general principle about how growth does occur. And we'll we'll mention it today, and see that in verse 19, and it'll be developed even more as we get into next week and then especially into chapter 3. So as we're looking at today, we have, it's sort of like affirmations and denials of something. Uh, when you when you say I am for this and you make you know and that means I am against these other things, it helps to clarify the thing that we're for. And so Paul is addressing these false teachers. He's saying he's warning them not to follow them in certain practices, certain beliefs, and that helps to clarify uh, how true Christian growth really does come and how we ought to actually be uh, living, what we ought to be pursuing. So how do we live the Christian life and grow individually and corporately? Well, first notice that it is not by asceticism. Not by asceticism. So Paul says in in verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. So there's two ways here the false teachers would disqualify the Colossians. And the first one is this insistence on the ascetic life. Definition of asceticism, it is severe self-discipline and avoiding of all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. But add to that, it's currying favor with God through being harsh to oneself, denying pleasures, and so on. It ties godliness and the ability to approach God, what makes one acceptable to Him, to external things that one would deny. And so it's legalistic. 
And it is this that these leaders, these teachers in Colossae, it is this that they delighted in, that they desired of the other Colossians, that they insisted upon for them. Now, the word that's translated here as asceticism is the word for humility. It's commonly just translated as humility. And obviously, humility is a good thing. But the context here is quite clear that this so-called humility being insisted on in Colossae by these other teachers is not good. Uh, the word is used again in verse 23, and there it's linked with severity to the body, which is why it's understood to be a technical term for asceticism. The specific ascetic practices being insisted on in Colossae uh, very likely would have uh, included, among, I'm sure, other things, um, a corrupted view and demand for the Old Testament food laws. So if you remember last week, uh, we looked at that. We looked at them insisting on matters of food and drink and passing judgment on these things, uh, insisting on the ceremonial law to be upheld. And this is probably part of this asceticism that they were uh, promoting, that they were insisting upon. Now, if you remember, those food laws served as a uh, served a particular function in the Old Covenant in the nation of Israel for drawing near in worshiping God. But the food in and of itself and the denial of one, one type of food and eating of another had no efficacy in itself to make somebody internally holy. They were meant to remind Israel of the need to come to God with a contrite heart. So these practices of eating certain foods, not eating other foods, and all the other ceremonial laws, they certainly did set the people of Israel apart from the other nations externally. But that was not the whole of it. That's not all that God was concerned about. So it was never appropriate for them to say, well, I eat this and I don't eat that. Therefore, I'm holy and have no need of anything else. I'm just good to go as long as I eat these things and take part in these ceremonies and feasts and fastings and, and then I'm just good to go. The contrite heart was the more significant matter in the Old Testament. David himself teaches us this quite clearly. So even under the Old Covenant, these food laws, this was not a pure asceticism where we just deny ourselves all these external pleasures and, and then therefore we're just, that's all we really need. Now we draw near to God. We've shown Him how serious we take this and we're good to go. Additionally, as we saw, now that Christ has come, it is in Him, through faith in Him, that we are made holy and able to draw near to God. And so, these food laws are shadows. They've passed away. Severity to the body does not add to what Christ has accomplished to make someone more acceptable. As if we need Christ, but if you really want to be acceptable to God, then you have to keep these food laws or practice some other form of severity to your body. But these Colossian teachers have come in, as we saw, they've misunderstood the Bible and the flow of redemptive history, and they've turned these laws, these old covenant laws, into ascetic practices. Abase yourself so that you may draw near to God. Right? Bringing these into the grounds of how it is that you would approach God on the basis of your 
severity to yourself, your denial of these pleasures. And again, this likely included many other practices too, which will later be described as severity to the body. And so they're, they're, the location of holiness to these teachers, this is, it's purely in these external matters. That's what holiness is. You want to be holy, then you, you, you conform externally to these rules, these laws. Do this, don't do that. And in verse 23, Paul mentions one reason that these are no good, that this approach is, is wrong. Being severe to your body, as he tells us there, does not stop the indulgence of the flesh. And so the, the problem of ungodliness, of a lack of holiness, resides first within the human heart. And so depriving yourself, depriving your body, depriving your life of certain pleasures and nice things doesn't actually deal with the root of the matter. Not eating certain foods can't address the flesh. That will not change the heart. Now it's good to not live in opulence. It can be a very good thing to even just voluntarily uh, forego certain pleasures in life, to practice some measure of just self-denial, humility, even of things that aren't inherently evil. But if we think that severe self-discipline and giving up of external things commends us to God, makes us acceptable to Him, then we've truly misunderstood the nature of our problem, that the root of sin resides in the heart, that what is needed is the circumcision of Christ, regeneration, to make a heart new, and that the ongoing need in the Christian life is to continue to have our hearts, our inner beings, renewed and transformed and changed into the image of God, and thereby producing fruit externally, leading to changes. Godliness is just not as simple as saying, get rid of your TV and all of your electronics, go without these kinds of pleasures and things that help your life, and you will be godly. Would that it were truly that simple. We would all be, we would have all arrived by now. We could do without that if that means that just makes us godly. But it's not this simple. The problem's deeper. Godliness comes as the inner person is renewed and transformed. And that will bring about external changes in practices. But it's an entirely different principle from asceticism. It is as different as making a dead tree healthy again and just hanging fresh fruit on dead branches. And so asceticism is an external and legalistic practice because it undermines grace. It is a works-based principle of godliness and approaching God that is to be repented of. It is not in accordance with Christ. Now let me just add one point to maybe clarify. The Christian life is one of self-denial. Right? Jesus talks about this. The Christian life is a life of saying no to sin and no to self. And this involves effort. This involves self-discipline. 
we can hear Paul even writing and talking about his severe discipline to himself. Beating his body he even uses that kind of language that almost sounds like he's an ascetic. That's not what he's saying there, but he is talking about a self-discipline. Sometimes, as Christians, we have to give up something. You know, we're fighting off sin. We're trying to give up, and, and sometimes our hearts aren't fully changed on the matter. We know the practice is sin, but there's something inside of us that still desires that and wants that, and we have to battle and we fight to try to put that thing off. We're practicing self-denial, and it takes discipline. But even this is not asceticism. We are still to know all the while that such acts of self-denial, while pleasing to God, this is not the reason or the thing that makes us acceptable to God. Further, we are to know that even when we externally conform, for example, if, if you feel a temptation to sin and you battle through it and you resist it and you don't give in, you don't engage and you put it off, we know that even when we have that kind of victory, there is still work to be done internally if, if something in our heart still desires that thing that is sin. So we can't just say, well, because I, I have not, never participated in that externally, then I'm just good to go. Right? This is exactly what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. We'd like to say, well, I've never physically killed somebody, so therefore I've, I'm, I'm righteous and holy. And Jesus reminds us, well, if you hate another person, that's like murder in the heart. So even then, it's, it's not simply a matter of externals. So I, I trust you see this difference between focusing on external practices as if that's all that's really needed to be holy. This ex, such, such external conformity is what Israel was constantly devolving into and what God was constantly condemning throughout the Old Testament. You read the prophets. Right? He he's uses language like he's wearied by their fasting. Right? That he despises their feasting. These are things he told them to do. But it's because they think, well, you know, we just show up to this festival, I just eat certain things and not other things, and everything's good to go. Meanwhile, they don't deal with God on a heart level. So, Paul is denying this asceticism. This is not how we approach the Christian life and pursue godliness. So, when it comes to how we live a healthy, growing Christian life, it's not by asceticism. Secondly, it's not by idolatrous appeals to other helpers. So he, he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. This is the second way they would disqualify them, insisting on the worship of angels. Now, what in the world is going on? Uh, we might look at this and just think, who's buying that? You know, someone comes in and insists you must worship angels. That just, to, I think to some, that just sounds ridiculous. Well, it is, but I think before we rush too quickly to kind of dismissing that as if we'd never, you know, possibly fall prey, I think what, what's likely happening here is Paul talks about asceticism and the worship of angels is that he is giving his analysis and conclusions about what it is that these teachers are proclaiming. So, it's unlikely in the case of asceticism that these teachers are waltzing in and saying, okay, 
We are going to institute asceticism. And we are going to draw near to God on the basis of our own works, in denial of the sufficiency of Christ and the grace of God. Right? They're, not, they're not walking in and just stating it so boldly. But Paul is saying that that is ultimately what is happening. That's his conclusion and judgment on their teaching. This is what their instruction on food laws and so on amounts to, asceticism. And so likewise, I think the matter of angel worship is probably very similar. That is, it's unlikely that they've waltzed in saying, I know, you know, we know, the Old Testament says to worship God alone, but actually, uh, we're going to worship angels as well. It's, it's quite likely not that bold. Again, remember, these teachings, he said in verse 4, sound plausible. And in verse 23, he'll say these things have an appearance of wisdom. So likely what's happening is that these teachers are coming in with careful language about their high regard for angels. You know, these holy creatures who minister around the very throne of God himself. How awesome are these beings? And likely, with that, there's an emphasis on the need of help from these angels. Perhaps even an encouragement to pray, to ask these angels for their help. I mean, why not? Seems plausible. Are they not ministering servants who serve to help the Lord's children? You know, after all, we are in a massive spiritual battle, are we not? We need the full might of heaven and the angels of God to help us to come to our aid if we are to stand a chance against the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Uh, you've heard of Satan, correct? Uh, you, you heard of Jesus and the demons that he faced and the disciples and how you know, powerless they were at times even to, to overcome these, these demons. Surely we need the help of these angels and so call out to them. Ask them for aid. And when you have success and victory, thank these angels for, for their help. Commune with them in this way. I suspect it's something to this effect. And so Paul, rightly, cutting through all of this, calls it what it is. Angel worship. It's idolatry. So I'm saying Christian growth does not come by idolatrous appeals to other helpers. Paul has very carefully and intentionally already declared Christ's greatness over angels and demons, likely because of the idolatry being pushed. There's this exalted view of angels. It has become idolatry in a form of worshiping these angels, and so he has declared certain things about the Lord Jesus Christ, the firstborn over all creation the one through whom all things were created. He's the head of all rule and authority, speaking of these beings themselves. Moreover, he has also shown that God has triumphed over these rulers and authorities through Christ and his cross. So, again, Christ is sufficient, he has said, greater than all these spiritual beings and even victorious over them. And so in him, believers are secured, eternally so, from the enemy forces whose claim on us no longer holds since our sins are forgiven. And we looked at that a few weeks ago. And so, we don't appeal to angels to help us in our spiritual battles. We go to God through Christ. And God 
dispatches angels as he pleases. This angel worship shifts the focus away from the all-sufficiency of Christ and is, in fact, idolatry. There's a renewed interest in our day in spiritual things, specifically spiritual beings, I should say, and even of appealing to such creatures. There have been angel fairs here in our own city, And there are professing Christians who really see nothing wrong with that type of spirituality. Obviously, this would fit under how we ought not to live the Christian life, based on what Paul's saying here. But I think there's another uh, current, ongoing example of idolatrous appeals to other helpers, namely in what goes on in the Roman Catholic Church with Mary and the saints. Mary, it is said, is a co-mediator with Christ, even more approachable and merciful than even the Son of God. And so, prayers are made to Mary. Of course, they deny that they worship her, as I'm sure the Colossian heretics denied that they actually worship angels. They just reverence them and talk to them and appeal to them and venerate them. Right? This is what Roman Catholicism tries to distinguish, right? They don't, we don't worship Mary, we venerate her. But I think we can draw the correct conclusion about this. That praying to her and assigning her the role of mediator is indeed worship. It's indeed idolatry. Likewise with the other saints. Praying to them and dipping into that treasury of merit where the excess merit of these saints is stored and added to Christ's own merit which together aid in the salvation of sinners. This moves us away from Christ. It's idolatry. These are idolatrous appeals to other helpers and mediators and they undermine the sufficiency of Christ. It is true, of course, that we need help. The Holy Spirit Himself is called by Jesus the Helper. Indeed, we need the body of Christ, the gifts of other brothers and sisters. Yes, we need the Scriptures. But none of this is idolatrous. This is the correct help for the Christian. These are means that God Himself has provided for us. It is the help that is in keeping with the sufficiency of Christ, who is the one and sole mediator between God and man, the one in whose name alone we make our prayers and offer our worship to the one true God alone. So growing as Christians is not done by asceticism nor by idolatrous appeals to other helpers. Thirdly, it is not done by listening to the visions of men. This is not by listening to the visions of men. That's not how we grow. It's not how we live our lives. It's not what we pursue. He says, again, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. If you're looking at an ESV, you probably see the footnote there. It it says that that phrase could be going on in detail about the things he has seen. 
Now, if you just zoom out for a second and look at these two verses together, 18 and 19, it looks like Paul just lists five elements of this teacher that is coming in and trying to disqualify them. He insists on asceticism. He insists on angel worship. He goes on about visions. He is puffed up. And fifthly, he does not hold fast to the head. It just seems like a list of five things. But here's how I think these five things fit together. This teacher is insisting on, as we've seen, asceticism and angel worship. And these things he has seen in visions. That is, visions have become the authority behind his declaration about angels and his declarations about ceremonial laws. And so he goes on then about these visions. He appeals to them. This is ultimately his authority in, this, in these matters. This teacher, is, he's a visionary man. He sees visions. Wow. It is possible that these visions are related to pagan mystery cults where people would be initiated into these religions through visionary experiences. Often these experiences were of heavenly sanctuaries. And so perhaps these false teachers were teaching on the necessity of such visionary experiences even for the rest of the Christians who should likewise seek to experience these things. This may even be a way that they were to gain the help of angels who are perhaps in this visionary experience around the throne of God that they're seeking to enter into. The word that's translated here as going on in detail, the Greek word has been found in inscriptions describing these visionary experiences in these pagan mystery cults. One of these inscriptions is even found in Laodicea, a, a nearby city to Colossae. And it's also found in another uh, city near Colossae as well. And so it's possible this has to do with this pagan mystery cult, these visions. The difficulty with that theory and saying that that's definitely what's happening here is that the mystery cults arise really later in the second century. That would be after some, you know, these inscriptions come some 80 plus years after Paul writes this letter. But it's of course possible that these concepts and ideas, even before these full formed, you know, religious cults are there, that these elements and these ideas are still around and still being, are being taught. So I think what's safe to say is that what's happening in Colossae is likely a sort of uh, syncretistic blend of mystical visionary experience with Judeo, that is these Old Testament ceremonial laws, and Christian concepts. The sort of blending of all of these things together. As if they just all fit. And so these are visionary men, these, these leaders. They're relying upon them and going on about these visions. And Paul gives a couple of results on this. He draws some conclusions about these visions and these men. First, such a man is puffed up, he says, or arrogant, without reason by his sensuous mind or his fleshly mind. Paul categorically dismiss, dismisses these visionaries as arrogant, 
fleshly. These visions are self-exalting claims. Not spiritually minded. The opposite of what they are claiming. And second, such a man is, he says, not holding fast to the head. The head being a reference to Christ. Such a man is outside of Christ. He is not united to him. He's not holding fast to Christ. He's not continuing on as believers receive the Lord Jesus Christ. He's way off. He's off in arrogant delusion, making much of himself through visions. And again, no doubt, this would be couched in humble language. But Paul makes a judgment that he's puffed up, not holding fast to the head. Even in Paul's day, when the prophetic gift is fully active, Paul can see, without even meeting this man or these men, however many there were, that they're false, because this message is simply not in keeping with Christ. These so-called visions are lying visions. How many people have been sucked into horrific error by men and women claiming visions to support their arguments. And yet who, every time, move the focus away from Christ and onto themselves, onto something else. Who ultimately just exalt themselves as they become the authoritative messenger, proclaiming their own fancies that are not in accordance with God's word or apostolic doctrine. They are not commissioned by Christ, and yet they claim that mantle. Instead of proclaiming God's word, they've usurped and they proclaim their own fancies. In Jeremiah 14, 14, it says, The Lord said of such men, I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision worthless divination and the deceit of their own minds. Uh, Jeremiah 23 goes on um, in, in an extended almost rant against these, this exact thing, these lying visions in these men who will not preach the word of God. They usurp it and preach their own lies and visions and garbage. It's usurping of the authority of God. We don't grow by following after the visions of men. We have the Word of God. People are so ready to go after visions, so desiring of something, some sort of experience, uh, some sort of miraculous thing. The person who gets up and proclaims their own vision and the thing they've seen will be lauded as humble. And yet you get up and insist upon the truths of God's Word and you don't back down upon those and you will be derided as being an arrogant person. Which is more arrogant? You know? Jeremiah 14, 14, Jeremiah 23, here the Apostle Paul. It's these men who would just preach what they feel or what they've seen in visions that are not from the Lord. 
We have the Word of God. We have the apostolic doctrine passed down by those whom Christ himself did actually commission for that task. And the foundation of the church has been laid by the apostles and the prophets, and now we simply build on top of that. We don't chase after visions. We seek to let God's Word have the authority and to have its say as best we can with God's help. So we don't grow by asceticism or idolatrous appeals to other helpers. We don't grow by listening to the visions of men. Such things would disqualify, lead you out of the way, away from Christ. So then what do we do? How does growth come? Well, Paul reveals that we grow by abiding in Christ. Not by these other things, but by abiding in Christ. Again, of the false teachers, Paul says that this man is not holding fast to the head that is Christ. And then, and and here's where growth comes from, so not holding fast to the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Growth ultimately comes from God to those who are united to Christ and abiding in Him. If you remember back to chapter 1 and verse 18, there Jesus was declared by Paul to be the head of the body, the church. And back when we were there, I I mentioned how head means authority. That's typically how it's used. In verse 10, it certainly means that, head of all rule and authority but can also have this sense of um, being the source of life. And so this false teacher, these guys preaching in Colossae, this false teacher is not connected to the head. He's not under Christ's authority. He's under the authority of his own visions. He's not under Christ's authority. He's disconnected from the life of Christ. True growth, true maturity, on the other hand, comes to those who are connected to the head as members of Christ's body. Life, health, growth flows to believers from Christ. This is what Paul is saying here. And it's the same, I think, concept as what was read earlier from John 15 then. He is the vine, we are the branches. And if we are, if we are not in Him, we can do nothing. But we are atta- as we are attached to Him, we grow. As we abide in Him, life comes to us. We grow. And again, this is related to our union with Christ. When a person is born again, they're spiritually united to Christ and receive all the blessings of salvation. They flow to believers on account of this union, of belonging, belonging to Christ, being attached to the head. And this these blessings include the blessing of sanctification, our growth. And so I think this is the same thing that Paul has been saying in what he said in verses 6 and 7, where he exhorted us as he received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And then I explained back then when we were in those verses that the next three words are passive, implying that God is the one who does the action. Being rooted 
and being built up in him and being established in the faith. And so again, before anything else, a Christian's growth is the work of God. And apart from abiding in Christ, it will not happen. And so we denounce those who would disqualify us. And we stay put in the faith once for all delivered to the saints, placing our hope of redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. So Paul's emphasis here is that God is the one who gives the growth, right? It is a growth that comes from God, he says. He's emphasizing God's role here, giving the growth to those who are in Christ. But I would, as Paul does elsewhere, acknowledge that God uses means to accomplish this growth. So yes, he calls for action on our part. And we will see this in the coming chapters, or coming verses, and into chapter 3 especially, of Colossians. Christian life is not simply a passive one. We ought not to make that mistake. But what he's driving at here is that none of that effort that we put in will have any usefulness if you depart from Christ. Why? Because at the end of the day, growth comes from God through the head to his people. This is why Paul uses language that strikes us as odd at first, like, work out your salvation, for it is God who is at work within you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Or, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 29, things like, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul knows that he, as he puts out effort in the Christian life, if he's not in Christ, all that effort would be for absolutely nothing. And that even as he is str struggling to be disciplined and putting in effort to serve the Lord, he knows that ultimately it is God who gives and provides the growth. So again, the Christian life most certainly does involve the pursuit of holiness, this is true, it is not a passive life. But we must have a foundation underneath us of the all-sufficiency of Christ for our salvation. We must have a foundation under us that all we need to stand before the Almighty now and forevermore comes to us by God's grace through faith. The grounds of our salvation is Christ and His redemption that He has wrought. And the Christian life is one that always keeps this in view and just builds upon this. Doesn't leave that aside as if that's just an entry point and now we just kind of pursue and do whatever. No. We never move on from this. And the Christian pursuit of godliness is one that remains consistent with this, upholding the grace of God and the sufficiency of Christ all the way through. And so Paul is zealous that we would be aware of and beware of those who would shift the focus away from Christ and away from God's grace, who would draw us away from the head, 
away from holding fast to the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints, which is holding fast to the head, as he says, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just free anyone here who is laboring under a legalistic spirit, who is continually downtrodden because of their inability to live up to your standards. Father, we confess this is sin, but your word points us to Christ, our Redeemer who has died for this sin. And Father, if anyone here is laboring under a legalistic spirit and actually thinks that their works are good enough to commend them to you, I pray that you would smash this thinking, cause them to see the true depths of their sinfulness and the greatness of your glory and how far short of it they fall, and how truly deserving of judgment they are, as all sinners are, because of this sin, and cause them to see the greatness of Christ and the wonder of your grace. Father, may we be free and rejoice in Christ, rejoice in your salvation. May we be swift to reject those who would seek to disqualify us, moving us away from the gospel, moving us away from Christ and from grace. Father, may we hold fast to Christ and may you grow us. Father, grow us in godliness. Grow us in our desires change our hearts all the more, renew our minds, renew our inner beings, that we would indeed desire truth and righteousness and that which is good and pleasing to you, that we would pursue it as free people out from under the curse of the law. Father, may we grasp these concepts and avoid legalism and asceticism Father, I pray for great joy in our pursuit of that which pleases you. We pray that you would indeed be knitting us together in love and growing us up into maturity, that you would be glorified in this. We pray this together in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.